there were enough sturgeons that if they would land on the ferries that used to cross the Delaware River. And there were, there were accounts of sturgeon jumping out of the water and landing on the ferry, right? And they would, <laughs> take, they would take it home. That's how many animals there were. This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. You are listening to Welcome back to the second-to-last Urban Wildlife Podcast episode of Season 1. Yes. I don't know exactly what that means. It means that we got one more in the hopper after this. This is the last one we're taping, and we've been saving a special extra loose episode on the Pier 53 skinks for the end. The interviews are not coming out in chronological order as we recorded them. They have not been. And our skill at doing interviews and talking understandably, intelligibly, isn't necessarily consistent with the chronology of the episodes. So in the time that we will have between the next episode, between the next season, we will be refining our use of our recording equipment. We just got a new piece for that. We might invest in some mics to up our professionalism. And right now, though, hey, who am I? I'm Billy Brown, and... I'm Tony Crosdale. And we have... Robin Irizarry. Robin, talk a little bit about yourself. Who are you? I'm Robin Irizarry. I work with the Tukany Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership. So if you're not familiar with that creek, is the creek so nice they named it thrice? That's what I like to say. I, I may be the only person that says that, but that's sounds the like case. a bumper sticker to me. But yeah, yeah, you know, bumper sticker in the making. You need a really long bumper, <laughs> especially for the name there. itself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm the uh, Philadelphia Watershed Coordinator. For the TTF, which we can just call it from now on. And I work primarily in the city portion of our watershed uh, with my colleague Dorian de Angel. And we work primarily in uh, Tacony Creek Park. We do a lot of education and outreach in the community about urban stormwater, why it's important. Uh, so there's a lot of great green city clean water stuff happening in our watershed. It's a very urban, urbanized watershed. Most of our Tributaries to our creek are buried underground in sewers. That happened a long time ago. Yeah, we're in a combined sewer overflow scenario where uh, we get sometimes sewage combining with storm water during heavy rain events. So it's important people understand. And so, as briefly important. as you can, this yeah. is a problem that afflicts a lot of older cities. So, what does that mean? Um, the city decided to, you know, along, you know, back in the earlier mid 1900s, uh, they decided to put all of the smaller creeks and tributaries uh, to turn them into sewers because there was a lot of problems with disease and, and you know, stuff was polluted. Uh, basically, the same uh, pipes that your toilet's flushed into is where the rain that's landing on the streets is ending up. When we have really heavy rain, that stuff can actually overflow the system, uh, overload it, max it out, and discharge sewage into our creek, which yeah. obviously... You don't want raw sewage going into a creek. It's it's bad news for the fish and everything else living down there. Bad news for the kids who want to go swimming in it. So, yep. Uh, you know, the city is looking to do the Green City Clean Waters plan, which is going to basically divert that water from hitting the streets and get it into gardens and all sorts of stormwater planters, stuff that's also greening the neighborhoods, but yep. ultimately keeping that excess water from ending up overloading the, the sewage into the creek. Great stuff. Um, I know that 
it's good just to have water that we can swim in and fish in and, and not be thinking about sewage. But it's also good for animals you can find and plants you can find, just the, the overall health of the waterways. We talked in the last episode a little bit about um, how we used to have problems with like oxygen dams in rivers, in our rivers, where nutrient flow would kick off this cycle of, uh, so this trophic cycle, we're not going to get into the... Eutrophication. The, the eutrophication, and, and suck, basically, the nutrients would fertilize algae, which would die, and then as they decompose, it would suck up all the oxygen. Um, and so the less sewage we have running into our waterways, the less that's going to happen, and that's all wonderful. Not to mention us not getting sick from swimming in the river. Yeah. What are some of the coolest things you've seen swimming around in, uh, in the creek, which I'm not sure what to call, TTF Creek? Wait, so, did you explain uh, why it's renamed that? Why is it named Thrice? Named Thrice. It is named Thrice. So you have uh, the Tsukini, which is what we call uh, the northern stretch of it, up in you know, the headwaters, which is in Montgomery County. Yep, across the border outside of Philadelphia. Across the border. Yeah. The creek comes down. It's Tsukini Creek. It hits Sheltonham Avenue, which is the border between Montgomery County and Philadelphia, and yep. it becomes Tacony. So that's just like a phonetic thing as... as yeah, Tukini to Tukoni. Yep. Tukini to Tukoni, people in different neighborhoods. Tomato, tomato. Yeah, adopted a different name. Then further down, um, the entire stretch of Tukoni is, is encapsulated in Tukoni Creek Park. So it's yep. 300 acres of park, very linear, surrounded by very dense urban yep. uh, residential. So then you've got... It gets down to about Juniata, and it becomes the Frankfurt Creek. And that's because the old Wingahawken Creek used to come in and meet the Tacony, and they merged to form ah. the Frankfurt. So the Wingahawken is now underground. Okay. I think that happened around the 40s. Wingahawken is completely underground, but that drains all of Mount Area and Germantown, and that's the largest combined sewer oh. outfall now onto our creek. So you can go down to Juniata and stand oh. right above this, you know, massive where the Wingahawken comes out, and that's the Wingahawken. Have you ever gone up in it? I haven't gone up in it. Okay. Um, I, I don't have much desire to. It's <laughs> I have witnessed nasty. people do it. I've I, seen the thing running and on full and blast I, in the rain. And so. I declined to join them. Yeah. I, I did like a watershed walk with some were they, adventurous they, people. They were booted up and stuff and ready to do it? Or were they just walking in like with their flip-flops? It was it was dry at the time. Or okay. the, you know, the sides of it, you know. And I, was I like, would totally go up in there. Taiki went up there. I'd believe it. How did you get turned on to... Nature as a, as a kid, urbanite. as a as a urbanite, as yeah. A, as I, a how how did someone come and inspire you? You at risk youth of color, at risk youth, and then show you a butterfly and a, and, a, and a raised bed, and you change your life. So I was like, here's child. some basil out of a raised bed, and now your life's changed. Is that what happened? That's um, kind of I guess. No, I, I don't know <laughs> if there was any any particular uh, person I could point to. As a kid, I grew up in Alney or Alany as, as it's properly pronounced by locals. You know, I wasn't really into sports. I was always into animals and nature and stuff. So I was always playing in this creek, which for me was, you know, the wild. And, you know, and now I look at it now, and it's all culverted and the shopping carts and everything. But that was the wild for me growing up. And I remember being a kid and, and playing in there and trying to – I never went swimming in there. But I would try and catch, like, the minnows. We were using, like, McDonald's straws and little tiny marshmallows, like, <laughs> trying to catch minnows uh, to no avail. And I ended up um, going to school, really getting into that stuff, and uh, went and uh, studied landscape architecture at Temple, uh, which is now the School of Environmental uh, Design. Wait, you went to Ambler? Yeah, yeah. I went to How Ambler. many more things can we share? 
I don't know, man. Did you go to Everglades? Yeah. I didn't know that. And before that, going into it, I was a, I was an animal guy. I was all about, you know, critters and herps and everything like that. But, um, you know, so I got really into plants there. I mean, before that, I didn't know what an oak, I couldn't tell you an oak from a maple. But now I'm like uh, really into native plants. I worked for a few years at a place called Land Stewards up in Bucks County doing ecological landscape design and construction. Got to do a lot of really neat projects, designing rain gardens and meadows and building that stuff and spend a lot of time outside. Um, a lot of time digging and shoveling, a lot of time driving a truck and, and got to do some design and some awesome stuff as well. So yeah, and then the funny thing is, talking about Ambler, when I applied for landscape architecture for the school, you got to write an essay about why do you want to do this. And I put on there, I remember writing on there, why I'm into this whole scene was because I grew up playing in Tacone Creek Park, and I love playing in that park, and now looking back at it, and knowing more that I do, I see how degraded it is and how beat up it is. So my dream would be to come back and work to help restore that park. So... It's pretty cool that now. Yeah, it'd be awesome. TTF watershed, and I get to do exactly that. I still get to do some awesome stuff, leading bird walks and you know nature walks and all sorts of cool stuff in the park. Excellent. I think some folks who they get a picture of what we're talking about, like the bottom portion that would have becomes Frankfurt Creek. Mm-hmm. Probably the the most similar thing in popular culture that people might know about is the LA River. Yeah. What did you say? That that's probably the closest. Yeah, it's channelized. Know. They actually. You know, the original mouth of the creek is a few miles north, um, north of the neighborhood of Brisburg. Oh. They actually um, straightened out the channel, you know, to really just, I think it was, it was mostly shoot it right for, out to the river. for flood abatement. Yeah, just making sure instead of doing this extra jog and heading north, they just wanted it going straight oh. out. Um, may have been for, you know, maybe ships. Which is a bummer, there. I mean, because you think of some other, I just think of like, Penny packed on the Delaware, you know, like where you have the creeks flowing out. Yeah. Uh, you, you can get some neat little, some neat, like, habitat in there. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we lost that. It's yeah. Insane. All right. Well, all right. Well, on the, the bright side, you guys are doing like, I, I remember, I mean, they're doing a lot of great work, and the park itself is a neat park. It's sort of like away from my neighborhood, so I don't go there very much, but when I do, I like it. And I did, um, we did an article in Grid once about beavers there, um, because basically that, we might, we might focus on this in a future episode, but that the, I think the water department is who did the plantings, they planted some like very nice smallish oak trees, and they're really proud of their tree planting. And then beavers came and liked those trees so much they chewed them and, and, not, and took them down yeah. and ate them. And so you ha- I talked to a very frustrated guy from the water department because he probably went through a lot of trouble to get the funding and arrange all of it and get the trees put in. And then oh, not, not, it wasn't like even some kids from the neighborhood. It was like a wild animal came in and like <laughs> decided that their, yeah. their, their environmental enhancement was, was too tasty to leave there. We were talking about what to do as the synanthropic organism of the episode. And, you know, it's fall. A lot of birds are leaving and heading down south, and this is a hot time for birders like Tony. Indeed. Indeed. Um, and uh, for, if I can call myself a bird. And Robin. And Robin, sorry. I like the birds. You know, for someone who's like barely a birder like me, I have a lot of fun with the really common stuff um, that I can see. I know, but birders will do that too. But but I, um, I know this with people who get into herping also, I'll say, like, 
when you're like doing this all the time and like you see another garter snake, you're like, oh great, another garter snake. Um, but people who aren't used to seeing snakes, you're like, hey, that's really gorgeous. It's a really pretty snake. Uh, I feel that way also with chimney swifts. Um, I just think they're a blast to watch. Um, they're, I mean, they're super fast. They're super agile. Um, I love how they chatter all the time. Um, and you can see them like overhead in Philadelphia from like, when do they show up? End of April. End of April, like well into October. I've, been, I've seen them further into October than I would think. Um, so you see them for a whole, like a solid set, six or seven months. Um, you look up wherever you are in Philadelphia, like there are chimney swifts zipping around. And we're right about when they depart. And it's a, it's a neat bird because you think of just the name of it. Like it's, it's not like, I don't know, Northern Swift or something like that, which is vague. But it's like chimney swift. It's obviously something that, like, that lives with people. Um, and I think the history of them is basically they probably, you know, before European colonization, they lived in, in old hollow trees. And now, though, you know, our, our continent is full of chimneys from a chimney swift perspective. I'm in old buildings, uh, and so they've they sort of just switched habitat or switched nesting habitat and roosting habitat, I guess, to to chimneys. And um, they where do they go? The to the northern Amazon. The northern Amazon, jeez. Yeah, there's actually an interesting story that I heard, and I'm going to just full disclosure. This story is purely hearsay. Okay, and I need to like look it up. Kind of like the Nazi records. Yeah. So <laughs> the rumor that I heard was that people didn't know where Jimmy Swift's wintered. And a story that I was told that yeah. some indigenous folks in like the northern Amazon where it starts to get a little bit more hilly, like the foothills in the Andes were still, but it's still like, you know, Amazon. Yeah. They just showed up at a government office with a handful of bands because they were eating them. That means that they're, they still roost in trees in the Amazon, but they breed almost exclusively, or maybe exclusively now, in man-made structures. Yeah. But it makes sense, because at one point, the east was almost completely denuded of trees. Yeah. Yeah. So. The, there are no trees and a whole lot of chimneys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, in those trees. And if, they're, if, they're, if they sort of choose roosting habitat and nesting habitat based on what they grew up in, then that's what they're going to stick with. If that is how they do it, yeah, I don't know. Like me and Rob, we don't, we can't sleep comfortably at night unless we're in a row house. <laughs> and and chimney <laughs> swifts can't sleep well at night unless we're on a vertical surface. Wait, do you think we can um, I sleep vertically in my room? You sleep vertically? Okay, well there you go. I've yet to, to have any children. Okay, and I'm wondering if it's because when I moved to West Philly, I started living in like these Victorian twins. Yeah, and that row houses, and maybe I just you know it threw me off, and I need to go back to row houses so I can breed. Well, you know, it's a hypothesis. You're going to have to find some lucky <laughs> partner and test it out. <laughs> well, now that, I, now that I'm a city worker with all the city benefit package and pension and everything, I'm just going to go back to my old neighborhood and, and, settle down. and go to an Irish bar and be like, Yo, Kelly, I got those bennies. <laughs> <laughs> Did you talk about your new job yet? No, I didn't. I, yeah, I got a new job. Tell us about the new job, Tony. So I am the environmental education planner for the Wissahickon Environmental Center. There you go. And it's for Philadelphia Parks Woo! and Recreation. And it is paradise. <laughs> I mean, like, I really think If you it's... can think of where Tony should work, an urban nature center is about as good as it can get. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe like one, I mean, maybe something, maybe one that was like, I mean, this one is like kind of remote. It's, it's 
pro- it's almost it's the, the most far northwest fringe of the city. Yeah, and, and it's like it kind of looks like you're in the mountains because it's very it's like a steep gorge. Yeah, and it's so quiet that if I don't have like a, a school group or something there, yeah, I can literally hear woodpeckers like multiple woodpeckers foraging, not like tattooing, like yeah. just like when they're picking through bark. Yeah. I can hear multiple ones around me because it's that quiet. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Neat. The building I'm in is a house. It's up the hill from it. Yeah. And further in the woods. Called the tree house. Yeah, because there used to be a tree growing through it. They, they built it. It was the house that ha- was built to house the um, a family that was running the nursery. Because the n- former yeah. indoor yeah. nursery. Yeah. Uh, and now it's like. So there's a wonderful. A commercial meta. nursery. Yeah. So then you get all kinds of weird. Like exotic trees that they're not really escaping; they're just still growing from where they put them in the nursery. We saw some enormous Japanese maples in there. Yeah. Oh, one more thing about Chimney Swiss um, is that because as the, as the housing stock in the United States shifts from older brick buildings to newer buildings that don't have like old chimneys on them, um, there's concern about their decline. So we'll link to an organization that is working to to get people to put out um, artificial chimneys on their roofs to offer um, roosting and nesting space for chimney swifts. It's a neat project. I'm, I mean, I'm all for that. That's fine with yeah, and That's cool. Yeah. I'm into that. But here, here's the thing that, that kind of interests me. Or, a question in your mind. Oh, yeah. Here's a question that is bringing up to me. is Similar to, like, the decline in meadow birds on the east, people are concerned about them. But these birds are only out here because there was... Um, yeah. People made farmland, and the farmland went. There was a period of time when people stopped farming, and the farm went fallow. So they're artificially common, is what you're saying, right? And Timmy Swifts again, they're kind of artificially common. I mean, so it might be another thing that'd be more like try to get them back in the trees. I don't know. So it's fine, you know. It's not harming anything, but it's not like a crisis. It's like well, it's an interesting question. I think it's yeah. So we'll, um, yeah. I, I, I don't want to like hope that like. The person heading up this project is like a podcast fan of ours, and is like, "No." Well, I think it's it's it's, it's something. Well, they can, we could bring them on and interview them, and they plead their case. That's what I want to have. plead his case. I mean, I think maybe think of it as, as they present just, their side of the the, 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 the discussion. I mean, again, know? I'm not against it at all. I'm just yeah, yeah. thinking about it. What do you have something against birds? <laughs> <laughs> I love Chinese swifts. I love them, um, and I think you, you also think of them as as. As something that I guess they don't eat mosquitoes so much, but they eat a lot of moths and other things. So it's like a neat part of like the urban, um, call it insect control. Um, you know, don't put out a bug zapper. Put out a chimney swift chimney or a bat box, and like have something else like snatch up your your, your cucumber beetles and your your moths. Uh, you know, that's that's that, that goes and sort of feeds them to the food web. So here are some swift observations, starting with uh, my rooftop back in May of this year, around 6 o'clock in the evening. So I'm on my herping vacation well, right now I'm in Franklinton, Louisiana, which is a very small city or a big town, I guess. And I'm looking up at what look like chimney swifts zipping around and twittering. These might be resident, I guess, but I kind of wonder if these are ours or if they belong to Jim Thorpe. I was there recently, which is another small town 
in the Poconos of Pennsylvania, the mountains in northeast Pennsylvania, um, where I'm used to seeing them fly around, but just last week uh, they were gone. I guess they had already started their migration. This is early. I'm, talk- I'm recording this on October 3rd right now. And um, same in Pittsburgh. I didn't see any when I was there. So I'm wondering if they've headed south and if these are ours or if these are resident ones. Um, in any case, I'm in a small town looking at an urban bird and sipping above the water of the Bogue Chito River. Synanthropic organism. Um, so we're going to shift gears and hear about sturgeon. And I don't know how much a chimney swift weighs. Later like, on later. We could look it up. I mean, they're like, <laughs> later they, they later. probably weigh as much as like <laughs> a quarter. Like, like literally like, your, like less than your what pocket you change. What are you saying, Rob? Later on later. What did you say? Later on later. It depends. Ah. If they're you know, carrying something. What would they be carrying? Oh, I don't know. A coconut, perhaps? A coconut. Okay. Yeah, okay. Sorry. So what else had to say that? Um, those are swallows, though. African swallows. Oh, swallows. swallows. All right. So what is it? Urban chimney swift. And they're not actually related. Swallows and swifts are not related to each yeah, other. Yeah, swifts are more closely related to hummingbirds. Swifts carry Coke cans. There you go. <laughs> the animal for coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they don't weigh much. Sturgeon, however, um, as we'll hear from uh, one of our guys coming up, are absolutely massive. Uh, and so I think the, the thing to think about is, is that you know, when we think of, of urban wildlife for the most part, most things are small that, lives in, that, that, that live above ground in cities or even in the ground, per se, of cities. I mean, like, the biggest thing you've got is, like, I mean, some places you've got mountain lions wandering in but, and maybe some black bears in the suburbs. But really what you've got is, like, the biggest you get is a coyote, which is, like, 30 pounds. Or deer. Or deer. Okay, how big is a deer? Uh, 150. 150, okay. So about human size or, you know... About human size. Um, whereas once you get into the water, you can have stuff that's a lot bigger. I mean, occasionally we'll have like whales swimming up into the tidal portion of the Delaware. Um, but historically, and less so today, but historically, I mean, every major city on the, well, really the northern hemisphere um, that sat on a river, which is pretty much every major city, every major city in the northern hemisphere had sturgeon swimming in its waters. Um, and when they went to, to nest. And so these puppies were, I was sort of looking this up before we started. We've got, like, in the Pacific Northwest, we've got white sturgeon that get maximum size of around 1,800 pounds and 20 feet long. Um, and we'll hear about the Atlantic soon, but then we got beluga, which historically, and they're, they're more restricted today, but these are fish of the Danube River, you know, one of the great rivers of Europe with lots of major important cities like Budapest on it. Um, and so these are fish that uh, the largest record one we're looking at as about 3,400 pounds yes. and 24 feet. So, you know, even if they're much smaller today and they're, you know, more in the, what, one ton range, you know, yeah, or hundreds of pounds or hundreds either. or even yeah. like 800 pounds for a small one, smallish or smallish adult one, I guess. Um, these are massive animals. Uh, that are swimming around right next to our cities. Um, and we don't know about them uh, because, A, they're underwater. B, they're mostly fished out. Um, and so it's sort of a sad story that way, but let's hear some some pieces. And first we're going to listen to the thing that kicked off this whole thing. There's an article in the in the in our Philadelphia newspaper, The Inquirer, about a dude who they had trouble tracking down, um, but just a picture surface of a guy who had caught 
a short-nosed sturgeon. This is a smaller species, but a short-nosed sturgeon in the Schuylkill River, which is a which is a smaller, not a small river, but a smaller river tributary of the Delaware, um, where they hadn't been seen before, um, and said nice th that says nice things about the health of them. Uh, and so let's listen to Joe Perillo talking about that. Joe Perillo, I'm an aquatic biologist for Philadelphia Water Department. Okay, and so you were just saying you met the dude who caught the short-nosed sturgeon. Yes, so we were, uh, it's been, what, four weeks now, and the uh, article ran in the Philly Inquirer, and the guy's nowhere to be found. Unnamed. I thought he wasn't, he didn't want to be found at this right, point. Right, so this was like a picture that was up in a bait shop, basically. No, I think he, the guy walked into the bait shop with a picture on his phone. Oh, okay. And, and he's showing people in the bait shop, and there's another fisherman in there that's just kind of like looking over his shoulder, oh, what do you got there? So that uh, kind of breaks apart. The other fisherman calls the fish commission. He's like, yeah, I was in Bob's bait, and I had a picture of a short nose, of a sturgeon. They didn't know whether it was Atlantic or short nose. Guy from fish commission called Bob's, and Bob was like, yeah, I know the guy, blah, blah, blah. Got him the picture, confirmed it was a, a short nose. But apparently didn't have the guy's name. So uh, when they, when Sandy Bowers went to write the the article for the Inquirer, they were like, they contacted everybody, the guy at the Fish Commission, the guy at Bob's Bait, they called us. No one could find the angler. So it was like they, we waited a couple days, I called to Bob's, and then uh, we were doing that, the, the fall cleanup at the fish ladder this morning, and um, guys were fishing because it was a warmer day. There was half a dozen guys up on the wall fishing for walleye, hybrid stripers, and, uh, you know, I see a guy in the distance, and I'm like, man, I wonder if that's the dude. <laughs> and uh, one of the other maintenance guys, he, another, he was a Puerto Rican guy that, that works on the crew, he recognized another guy, you know, and they start talking, and then 10 minutes later, he comes walking up. And he's like, yeah, I'm the guy that caught the sturgeon. So it was uh, it's kind of weird how things happen like that. Uh, well, I guess if he fishes there, he's going to be back, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. So how, put it in context, are these fish that, like, hey, they're there a lot, but people don't see them often so that when they do, it's kind of crazy? Or is it really a special thing that this guy caught that fish? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we searched the archives, and as far as I know, there's no modern-day era photographs of sturgeon. Like, you came in here and mentioned, oh, you guys have awesome photos of all this historical waterway stuff in Philadelphia. You know, there's not one sturgeon in the Schuylkill River in, like, any of the archives, so, like... Th that represents almost like the only picture. But you guys don't see when you're sampling. You don't see these guys, the sturgeon and the school kill. Correct. We do not see them. You don't um, see them on the fish ladder. No. Either species. No. So both species of sturgeon are really r rare in the Schuylkill. Yes. How about the Delaware? On, on the Delaware, short nose have become um, present. You know, you have kind of rare, present, common, abundant. The short nose are not as rare anymore. They're they're considered. You know, they're not common, but they're, they're present. Okay. Right. And their numbers are expanding, and their range is expanding. Up around Trenton, there's a certain time of year you can actually walk on one of the bridges and, and, and see short-nosed sturgeon grouped up. The, the, the big females, like two females with maybe seven males around, hmm. and, and they move around. And, and so in the main stem of the Delaware, the range of short-nosed has been, has been expanding. They're more common in the Atlantics. Okay. Atlantic sturgeons are starting to make a bit of a comeback, but, but we don't see them in, in, in the numbers that you find the short nose. Okay, but neither species tends to come up with a school kill. Our sampling methodology is mostly daytime boat electrofishing, and, and the way you're going to get a sturgeon more likely is, is gill netting, um, okay. fishing, being deeper in the channel. When we're electrofishing, you're basically 
you know, you're, you're covering an area, depending on the conductivity, you know, maybe 10 to 12 feet deep is about, you know, how, how deep you're working. And okay. sturgeons typically found more than a deeper channel spot. So the way we're sampling wouldn't necessarily be an optimal way. Like if you were out studying sturgeon, you would put gill nets in. Okay. And so sturgeon, just for those who aren't familiar with them, I think people might have ju might just know about them because of caviar. But like, what are they? Like, where do they live? I mean, are they are they in the rivers all the time, or are they coming in and out? certain times of year? Yeah, the uh, short-nosed sturgeon stay mostly in freshwater systems, uh, whereas okay. the, the, the Atlantic sturgeons will range out in the saltwater, you know, up, up to Canada and Labrador and, 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 and further down, you know, off the Carolinas in the summer or in, in the wintertime. So they'll kind of follow the temperature gradient um, along the coast, and then they'll enter the freshwater systems when it's time to reproduce. Short nose will, will kind of travel within the system. They might go further down in the kind of slightly brackish water, but they're mostly sticking in, in, in the freshwater part of the system, typically around the head of tide. So if you're thinking about the Schuylkill, like East Falls, above Fairmount Dam, at Falls Bridge would have been, before the dams were built, that would have been an area of a steep drop in gradient around Falls Bridge. You can yeah. picture massive boulders, big rapids, and kind of like the fall, like you see up in Trenton with the falls of the Delaware. Yeah. You know, so as a possibility, like we don't really have that habitat type anymore because it's basically drowned by the presence of an impoundment in Fairmount Dam. So yeah. there's a little bit of resemblance of it below Fairmount. There's a lot of bedrock. You know, at low tide, it's you really sure. have rushing water, yeah, and, yeah. and it kind of resembles something that they might be used to a little bit more. Joe was a sturgeon surgeon. Joe was a sturgeon surgeon. The sighting of that short-nosed sturgeon, like, not to, no pun intended, made waves around, like, the Philadelphia environmental world, where everybody's like, ooh, look at that. I, I think, Robin, I, this will, I'll hear your thoughts on this, but, like, when you're working in environmental stuff around Philadelphia... You're fighting the concept, the idea that our waters are filthy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we have, you know, a surprising number of fish in our creek. You know, people are always amazed when they see how many fish. Now, yeah. these are these are pretty pollution-tolerant fish. Yeah. But, you know, it seems like the trend is we're starting to see more diversity in all the rivers, you know, in Philly. You know, the bigger, you know, the Schuylkill, certainly, you're starting to see it bump up in, in diversity. We're hoping, you know, as... You know, the city starts to get a hold on some of this, you know, uh, green city, clean water stuff that, that starts to, you know, really that improve itself in our creek as well. And also, I mean, to an extent, we don't have control over some of it. I mean, I think most of the pollution in the Schuylkill is coming from upstream. Um, Wait, why didn't the free market um, <laughs> fix the, the, the... Acid mine drainage? Yeah. yeah I know. Wait, people made a lot of profit of... And backs up. One of our favorite pieces of legend, or one of our favorite laws, Clean Water Act. Indeed, yeah, um, the which, Species Act. You know, these are rules that that um, you know we're not an environmental policy show, but I think we can stop and say that we're really happy we have these laws, um, like the ESA, the Clean Water Act, uh, that have really transformed um, our environment in general, our waterways especially. Um, right on, go government. Damn it. Indeed, I'm a beer. I'm a, no, not a bureaucrat. What am I? I'm a civil servant. Now. You're a civil servant. That's right. I'm a civil servant and a bureaucrat. So there you go. Yeah, I'm a. People <laughs> like you're an anarchist. I'll working for the government. Terms. I say that to you all the time. I like to think that I'm working for the people. 
right. Um, so uh, that the story about the short nosed sturgeon got me thinking about bigger sturgeon also. And so I tracked down, um, this is for a grid article I wrote, but I taped it also. I tracked down a, a sturgeon researcher um, named Dwayne Fox, uh, and we're going to hear from him right now. My name is Dwayne Fox with Delaware State University, Associate Professor of Fisheries. We're fortunate that we have two species here in the Delaware, uh, short-nosed sturgeon and Atlantic sturgeon. The short-nosed sturgeon primarily live their entire life in the river in the upper part of the estuary. Uh, essentially, they spawn up around the Trenton area, and then they'll come as far down rivers, the upper bay, maybe around just to get below the CND canal, maybe around where the nuclear power plant is. Uh, short-nosed sturgeon get to be about five feet long and can live to be about 65, 70 years of age. You know, the maximum, maximum size is probably somewhere, like I said, about five feet long and probably around 60 pounds would be a really big one. Atlantic sturgeon, on the other hand, um, are very similar. You know, they have a, a life history that is similar to striped bass in that, uh, whereas short-nosed sturgeon remain in the river and the estuary and really don't go out to the, to the ocean, Atlantic sturgeon are the wanderers. And these are, these are very large animals. They don't reach sexual maturity until somewhere around 12 or 13 years of age. And, you know, they, they don't reach sexual maturity until they're about five to seven feet long. Uh, males at about five feet long, females at about seven feet long. And the reported maximum sizes for these animals are up, upwards of 14 feet long and just under 900 pounds. Um, so, you know, they're very, very large fish. Most people, you know, in this day and age, most people in Philadelphia don't have any, any idea that these fish exist, that when I've spoken to people on the docks when we're working, uh, you know, up there in Camden, Philly, People don't understand that, you know, right out there in the river, 40 feet of water on the bottom is a fish that weighs 350 pounds that we're, you know, we have a transmitter and are tracking. So, um, you know, Atlantic sturgeon grow much larger. They're probably live to be about 75 years of age. But whereas short-nosed sturgeon are resident in the estuary and in the river, the Atlantic sturgeon that we have tagged off the coast of Delaware, you know, down here at the mouth of the bay, those animals have been detected all the way from Cape Canaveral, Florida. So we put transmitters in them, and colleagues in Florida have said, your sturgeon have come by here, all the way up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which is on the other side of Nova Scotia. So these animals have, you know, gone 1,500 miles to the north yeah. and 1,000 miles to the south, and they do this on an annual basis. So these animals are moving all along. So much, much larger animal um, you know, and, and both of the animals are really, really cool. But as you pointed out, most people only know sturgeon for caviar, and very few of us even get a chance to try that today or through smoked fish. So both sturgeons, uh, you know, the, the, they feed primarily on really small prey items. Uh, the sturgeon, the ones that are in the river will be feeding on uh, small crustaceans, small shrimps, and amphipods, little, little invertebrates in the river, mussels, worms. The Atlantic sturgeon out on the coast, um, you know, these are animals that are the, the head shape. These animals live primarily on the bottom, 
and they're feeding in the sediments, in the mud primarily. So they're eating clams, they're eating shrimps, they're eating crabs, small things on the bottom. But, you know, if you eat enough of those for a long enough time, you can get pretty big. One of the other features of sturgeon is that they have barbels. So similar to catfish, whereas catfish have the barbels coming off the sides of the mouth, you know, at the front end of the fish, sturgeon have four barbels. These can be upwards of two inches long, and there are these skin projections that hang downward from the, the, the snout, from the head end of the fish. And, and they have this very highly uh, protrusible, it's, it's an extendable mouth, and what they're able to do is they're able to use that as like a little suction pump. They put it over a part of the sediment, and they just open their mouth really fast, and they, they bring in all the prey items. But, you know, what's interesting huh. about sturgeon is, so if you look at the fossil sturgeons, you can pick out a fossil sturgeon from 70 million years ago. They haven't changed huh. that much. These animals were in abundance before before the dinosaurs. They've survived the dinosaurs, and unfortunately, uh you know the IUCN, which lists, uh, which which has a ranking system for listing endangered groups of animals, lists the family sturgeons. There's there's about 27 species worldwide. List them as the most endangered uh, family of of vertebrates on the planet today. So of all, you know, when we think about all the big game, everything else, any vertebrate species, any species with a backbone, a family, it lists, it has selected sturgeons because of their life history. They're very, very long-lived. They get to be very large. They can't handle a lot of changes in the environment, and they're probably the most endangered group of animals on the planet today. The native peoples of the Chesapeake, so I've had some students look at this, and they actually described in the springtime, one of the first fishes that would come back were the sturgeons. They come back early in the spring, and they describe it as, and quote unquote, an orgy of fishing. So, the, you know, they would go out, there were enough of these large fish in the shallow waters that they could spear these animals, very high fat content, of course the eggs, you know, everybody likes the caviar, and so they actually supported the native peoples. And what's interesting is that for, you know, approximately from the time our area was settled, up until about the 1890s, for the most part, nobody did anything with sturgeons. Everybody did, you know, they were there. People saw them. They, there were enough sturgeons that they would land on the ferries that used to cross the Delaware River. And there, there were accounts of sturgeon jumping out of the water and landing on the ferry, right? And they would take, they would take it home. That's how many animals there were. Um, but in 1890, a German immigrant, uh, his name was Henry Dalbo, had come down from New York. He tried to establish a fishery in New York, failed miserably. The tides were wrong, everything came down. And, and this was an immigrant. He, he understood the value of sturgeon. The, the the local people in the Delaware Valley really didn't care for sturgeon. So Henry Dalbo came down. He established a fishery in the upper part, you know, the, the lower bay, probably around the Wilmington, uh, Delaware City area, down below the Delaware Memorial Bridge. And they had success. And this fishery took off eventually to the point that there was a city in southern New Jersey on the bay uh, which which was known as Caviar, New Jersey. That city flourished. And for, for a period of time, for about 10 years, the Delaware River led the world in caviar production. It was greater than all European caviar production from about 1890 to the year 1900, 1906, somewhere, you know, 10, 15-year period of time. And so this fishery absolutely took off. It was primarily targeting, as you pointed out earlier, 
the the adults and in particular the large females and at that point in time the average size female was eight feet long and weighed 350 pounds that was the average female and you know the 10 years that I've been sampling we've captured hundreds of sturgeon I think probably six or seven hundred sturgeon and the largest fish we've caught two fish that are over 300 pounds you know, those, wow. and that, that was the average size. So, you know, if you had that as the average, you have to imagine that there were five, 600-pound fish going around. And keep in mind that this was in the day before fish finders. These guys had sailboats. They had nets that were made out of cotton and or hemp, and they, had, they would use sail and row power to get their fish, you know, to go out and set their nets. And, you know, we have, oh. we have various technologies today, and we can't – those fish don't exist anymore. So, um, wow. yeah, there's there's a great, you know, I mean, again, this this fishery, the caviar fishery in North America, started right here in the Philadelphia area. So, uh, you know, subsequent to the 19, subsequent to that crash, you know, unfortunately for sturgeon, they kind of got a double whammy. They had they were overfished, and then right after that, you know, that was sort of the tail end or the you know the peak of the industrial revolution. Um, you know, sturgeon require clean, fresh water to spawn. As I mentioned earlier, they're like striped bass or salmon. You know, they come from the ocean, and they have to have clean, fresh water. Can't have any salt in it. So uh, sturgeons, you know, after after the 1900s, you know, the Delaware Valley was really booming and from an industrial standpoint. I mean, you know, the, this was uh, the textile mills, and there's there's accounts – back in the 1940s of the river being green one day and red the next and, and orange the next, depending on what, uh, what, what the textile manufacturing companies were doing. And so, you know, water quality, uh, water quality went down markedly. And, you know, we saw this in a lot of species, striped bass, shad, sturgeon, they all went down. And subsequent to, you know, the, the Clean Water Act, which I think was 19, 1972, um, you know, we've seen a rebound in the, in, in the water quality in the system. And we've seen, you know, striped bass populations have come back from where they were. Shad populations have come back somewhat. And sturgeon are unfortunately lacking. And I think part of that is because it's such a long-lived animal, uh, you know, it's going to take them a long time to rebound. Yeah, and coupled with that, you know, historically, most people don't know that the the, the Philadelphia or the Delaware River prior to dredging was was about 14 to 18 feet deep, and and now it's 40 feet deep, and they're going to be taking it to 45 feet deep. And by by dredging the river, we have changed the system. It's it's much deeper. There's much more salt water in the system because salt water is heavier than fresh water, and, and we've changed the dynamics of the system to sort of shift it away from being a great sturgeon river. But that being said, uh, you know, one thing that your 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 followers may not know is that the Delaware River is the longest undammed river on the East Coast. So yeah. the, the mighty D is what we call it. You know, I think there's a lot of potential because we don't have dams. And if we don't have dams, there's still potential for recovery for these animals. It, because of some of the lessons that we have learned with shad and salmon and striped bass from a genetic standpoint that essentially we want to make sure that the animals that we're releasing in the environment, uh, all these river systems, the Delaware has animals that are genetically distinct from the Hudson 
and from the James uh, River that are adapted to the – you know, these animals return every year. And so the federal government's stance on this, and I think there's evidence to support this now, is that if the habitat is there and there's a few animals there, let's let's let the animals take care of themselves. We're going to protect the habitats and allow the animals to recover. And I think it takes okay. a little bit longer, um, and you don't get the immediate – you know, satisfaction, but at the end of the day, I think it's a better process to follow. If you look back at the the original literature from the 1800s, the state of New Jersey actually published one of the first fishing regulations in the United States, and that fishing regulation specifically targeted small sturgeon. These were these were sturgeon under three feet long, and they they the legislation actually used the native word, which was mammoose, m a m m o s e. It's still on the books in New Jersey, I think, somewhere. Um, but that legislation was put into effect to protect small sturgeon. Um, it did nothing, did, did very little benefit to Atlantic sturgeon because Atlantic sturgeon, you know, are much, much larger than that when they mature. But the size limit probably protected short-nosed sturgeon. And as you pointed out, short-nosed sturgeon, you know, they weren't really targeted for the fishery, but because they lived their life in the river, there were issues with water quality. And Fortunately, as I mentioned with the, the, clean, the, the, the passing of the Clean Water Act, we've seen a recovery in short-nosed sturgeon populations. And short-nosed sturgeon, which were listed, they're, they're a charter member of the Endangered Species Act. They are the first fish that was listed under the Endangered Species Act as a short-nosed sturgeon. And population estimates in the Delaware River now place several thousand adults. So, if it hasn't recovered, it's very close to recovering in the Delaware River at this point. And, you know, one of, one of the big things that – so we've seen recovery on short nose. We haven't seen that recovery on Atlantics, and that's probably because when these Atlantics leave our system and they go elsewhere, they're captured incidentally in commercial fishing nets and other things. And that's some of the stuff that we're trying to work on, you know, out out on the in the ocean front working with commercial fishermen but yeah so you know i feel really fortunate we've got both of these species and i think the future is bright it's just going to take a little while my lab has been working cooperatively with commercial fishermen in uh, new jersey to develop uh to to modify some of the existing fishing tools and techniques that they use to minimize the encounters of sturgeon. So the, the fishermen know their gear, and they can tell you if we change this net this way, we'll catch less sturgeon. Um, and so we've actually been conducting trials of their nets. They come up with the designs, and we conduct the, the scientific studies of their nets, looking at catch rates of you know the desired species that they want to catch and then how many sturgeon they catch. And we've, you know, we've had some pretty good success in – uh, in developing new technologies that hopefully we can get the federal government and the fishermen to adopt that would decrease sturgeon encounters in the ocean, uh, you know, incidentally. Because they're not, you know, the, the, both of these species are protected under the Endangered Species Act, and we're trying to, you okay. know, try, trying to minimize those encounters. So we're back. Anyway, I was trying to explain to Magnolia um, – what a sturgeon, how big a sturgeon is. And I was trying to reference, like, she's like, well, how big is it? I'm like, well, it's like the length of your room, <laughs> you know? I didn't, 
imagine I never conceived that like a bottom feeding fish that's that massive would jump out of the water. That's awesome. Yeah, it's nuts. And any of the sort of landing and ferries, but just still the size. I just can't get over the size of them. I mean that that I mean record fourteen feet, nine hundred pounds. Again, when you look at the other lake uh, sturgeon that that you've seen that you see in other cities around the world, not not just the Atlantic sturgeon, that's not that big in the realm of sturgeons, um, and it's still an enormous animal, nine hundred pounds. That's like how, Tony, how much do you weigh? About two seventy. So it's like more than three Tonys. I'll fully disclose, this is coming from, like, the vegetarian at the table, but, like, the idea that people are going to kill a 75-year-old, enormous, majestic animal that's, like, 900 pounds for caviar is, like, obscene to me. And it's, like, it, it's, it's, it's not, they weren't fished out because people were starving. They were fished out because of a luxury good. It's like the, the snowy egret feathers for the hats. Yeah. Like, yeah, basically. I mean, or, or eating turtle soup, you know, like something of not... Shark fins. Shark fins, shark right. There's something that's not well, like... A swift nest, like certain swifts. Yeah, bird nest soup, yeah. I mean, they're... I'll say we, I think we beat up on the Chinese a lot um, for their weird things that they eat that drive species extinct. I mean, like the bird nest soup, the shark fin stuff, a lot of turtles, the Asian turtle crisis right now. Um, but this is one where it's like where it's firmly a European culture, you know, yeah. eating caviar. Hey, we made as a delicacy. Honkies made the uh, most abundant bird on earth extinct for like no good reason. Yeah, I don't want to live. I don't want to live in a world without sturgeon. Yeah, I agree, and I would prefer to live in a Philadelphia with sturgeon right outside our our, our city. You know, the only sturgeon I've ever seen was in Portland, Oregon. Speaking of urban wildlife and yeah, where'd you see it? We were salmon fishing and caught one and released it. Oh yeah, wow. how big? Well, four feet long. Okay. Yeah, I forget the species, but I might be going to Portland. Maybe a white sturgeon. I think they have white sturgeon out there. Yeah, I, for, I, for, I, I, I cannot remember the name, uh, but <clears throat> I will be in Portland in the maybe for New Year's. Nice. And hopefully do some recording when I'm out there. Nice, very nice, um, and. I'm going to try to do some recording in the thriving metropolis of Jim Thorpe, <laughs> Pennsylvania. Do some Swift recording, see if we get some chatters, chattering Swift on It'd be kind of interesting to talk to people, Jim Thorpe, about... We already had a whole episode of Tim Rattlesnakes, but yeah, Jim Thorpe is like Rattlesnake Central. It is. It is. Not right in town, but it is. So, But actually, like, you know, a few hundred yards out of town. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but the stur- what was I saying? Surgeon Portland... Um. All right. Cool. So, wrap up. Yeah. All right. And we um, don't really have a next episode. Well, with the next episode, we're going to talk about is the Pier Fifty Three Skinks. Right. We're, we're we're dropping that. We're dro- We're going to put it out. Yeah. So Are we're going to people ready it? for it. I think so. I think our listenership can handle it. They did. Yeah. We right. did not know what we were doing, and we were. Stop. We should stop apologizing for this. It is a lot of fun. This episode might not be what you're used to listening to, but it's going to be awesome. But I'm going to apologize for it. It's just a different style. Um, and, uh, you know, again, um, if you like what you're listening to, like us on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you're using. Tell people about it. Post it on your Facebook or whatever social medium you're using. 
Snap. Give us feedback. If you can figure out how to get this hyped on Snapchat, let us know. You give us enough feedback to probably have on the show, like Robin, because he's yeah, yeah. the person who tweets us the most. Robin up. tweeted his way onto the show. You got to blow up the Twitter. Account. Well, we probably need him. Any, we would probably come to find him anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, did, he just he was, he was like he tweeted us. I think it was probably your first tweet. And I was like, oh yeah, Robin McFerrick's going to have him on the show. But Robin was the one who invented Herpin to Hood. Herpin so Hood. we got that. Um, so that's how we roll. That's exactly how we roll. Um, you're talking to the guy. Ooh, update. Who caught his first Philadelphia milk snake in ten years? That is awesome. It was a moment. I can't wait for mine. I'm I'm live in Philadelphia milk snake ground zero. He does. And I flip him. Yeah. Where he's working. Yeah. I I, I not live where I work. Right? I caught one in 2005, and like I have been flipping God knows how many rocks in this town. I <laughs> try to find another one for ten years, um, and I finally flipped another one. If people want to help or get involved with TTF, what should they do? So if people want to learn more about TTF, get involved, come out to an event or anything like that, they can visit our website, www.ttfwatershed.org. We'd be happy to have them join us in Ticone Creek Park and hashtag discover TCP. Herp the hood every day. the hood. Well, Alright, so with that, um, we're going to wrap up. Uh, Stay tuned for the next episode. We talked about that. Um, I feel a little lonely without a little loss without the music, but we'll come up with some other stupid gimmick. Um, and give, it, give us feedback. We know we see the downloads. We see pe- we see people are on Twitter, but it'd be awesome. You know, a lot of podcasts I listen to they spend you know a good five ten minutes answering questions. That'd be awesome. We'd love some questions. <laughs> um, and also we'd love some ideas. I'm gonna say this. Um, you know, don't think this is some big professional operation. This is like a couple guys after work, um, and if I mean, actually three guys after work right now. Um, and if you have an idea for a story, if you're living in a city somewhere and you got some cool wildlife, plant, animal, whatever observation, pop out your your cell phone, record something, and and tell us about it. We want to hear it. Um, and you, you again get in touch with us through Twitter at Herb Wildlife Cast. You can hit us up on um, Facebook and our Facebook uh, page. You can um, email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Um, all great ways to get in touch with us and tell us what's going on. Thanks a lot. So, hey, anything we should uh, keep an eye out for on the TTF side? The TTF side? Well, we're keeping an eye on our beers. Yeah. Go ahead, say it again. Robert. We're keeping we're keeping. No. <laughs> 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 That's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs>